Welcome to Looks Like New on KGN News, It's the Economy. I'm Daria Medic. This is a show that asks old questions about new technology, even addressing questions that should have been asked a long time ago. We join you on the fourth Thursday of every month on the radio, or you can listen online as a podcast. Looks Like New is a production of the Media Enterprise Design Lab at CU Boulder. Today, we're talking about technology and decolonization, one of those words your head can easily start to spin from. It is loaded in meaning, history, trauma, and weight of importance. We can hear it everywhere, from the news to commercials to public policies. In looking towards models counteracting principles of colonization, some examples from history have started to arise and be taken up by both scholars and activists. Interestingly, Yugoslavia, the country I was born in and was old enough to witness its falling apart, itself politically positioned between the East and the West, comes up as a decolonizing role model and a country that was among the founders of the non-aligned movement, a forum of developing world states that still exists to this day. Originating in the 1950s as an effort to avoid the polarized world of the Cold War between communist and capitalist states, Its declaration stated, Peace cannot be achieved with separation, but with the aspiration towards collective security in global terms and expansion of freedom, as well as terminating the domination of one country over another. This legacy of a solidarity of the South has, among other things, recently inspired proposals for a digital non-aligned movement to counter the fragmentation of the Internet. How are these principles of unity put to practice by countries spread across half of the world before communication channels we are afforded today existed? And what lessons of solidarity can be transported into the online sphere, responding to the gaps of today's digital divide? Luckily, in an unexplored vault in Belgrade, the capital of former Yugoslavia, lies a collection of films. Archival footage documenting the non-aligned movement through images of African and Asian liberation and revolutionary leaders that defined the era of decolonization. To learn more about these records, I'm privileged to dive into this topic with Dr. Mila Turelic, filmmaker and archival artist, who has been researching and digitizing the non-aligned collection of the Yugoslav newsreels since 2013, seeking to contextualize and reactivate them via a feature-length documentary film and artistic research project exploring the poetics and potentialities in these archives. Mila Turelic is an award-winning documentary filmmaker born in Belgrade, Yugoslavia. In her work with archives, Mila researches the intersection of personal and national memories, always seeking to reactivate forgotten histories through forms ranging from lecture performances and video art to analytical essays. Her most recent film, The Other Side of Everything, premiered at the Toronto IFF in 2017 and went on to win 32 awards, including the prestigious IDFA Award for Best Documentary Film. The film was HBO Europe's first co-production with Serbia and had a record-breaking theatrical release. Mila teaches documentary filmmaking and creative archive use at Sciences Po and Inasup in Paris. 
Her films are regularly taught at several U.S. and European universities, and she has been a guest lecturer at universities such as Sorbonne, Harvard, and Stanford. She received her Ph.D. in cinema from the University of Westminster and her Master and Bachelor in Politics and International Relations from the London School of Economics. Today, we're talking to Mila Turelic about what are non-aligned newsreels and how to work with archives in today's media landscape. So Mila, it is such a pleasure to have you here. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for the invitation. To start off, can you tell us a bit about the non-aligned movement and your interest in particular? How did this story come to you and what makes these archives in particular story crafting material together with this enigmatic figure of Stevan Labudovic? Sure. So I guess for um, your listeners who have never heard of it, it's maybe good to start with an explanation. So the non-aligned movement was essentially a political project born in the 1960s, very related to kind of the political events taking place at the time. As the continents of Asia and Africa were decolonizing, um, numerous new countries were created. And these countries were created in a context in which the world was divided in a Cold War between you know, the Soviet Union and the United States spheres of influence. And so many of these countries didn't want to get drawn into this global superpower standoff and ended up coming together, creating something called the non-aligned movement. So non-aligned to either of the two big blocks, um, hoping to chart, in some ways, hoping to chart a third way um, for themselves or an independent way for themselves in, in international politics. And at the time of its Apex, this movement gathered around a third of the world's population. It was maybe one of the most massive political projects in that sense. And really, I think today, even though it still exists today, it still exists as an entity and they still have non-aligned movement summits. It, it's not really, I would say it's like a shadow of its former self. What I'm really interested in is in the origins of this movement and particularly what it represented in the area of decolonization, not so much in what that movement kind of degenerated into today. And so my interest in the non-aligned movement isn't necessarily coming from a very academic place. It comes from the fact that when I was 10 years old and living in Belgrade, which was at the time still the capital of Yugoslavia, I actually saw one of the non-aligned summits because it was being hosted by Belgrade. And it left an incredible memory um, for me because there was something about this gathering of statesmen and they were all coming in their national costumes and kind of claiming their independence also by way of their appearance and their looks. And we were school children. I was 10 years old at the time. And we were taken into the streets to kind of, you know, wave flags at the gathering dignitaries. And it really, really, I was really marked by the energy of that moment or the energy around this movement. And for me, for years, it's been a topic I was curious to explore, again, going back more to the symbolic performative aspects of it that I found so interesting, less necessarily really studying it as a political, I'm a political scientist by education, but that wasn't really what attracted me. What attracted me was this idea of the fact that they had managed to perform their political vision or perform their political ideas. And so for years, I've been looking for ways to tell the story of this movement. 
and didn't really come up with the right way to crack the story. It just felt very kind of dry and historical until completely by accident, I happened to meet a man who was 87 at the time, whose name was Stevan Labudovic, who was a cameraman of the Yugoslav newsreels. But what made his story incredibly interesting is that he had been the cameraman of Yugoslav President Tito. And as Tito's cameraman, he had followed the president on trips that the president took to all of these newly independent countries in Asia and Africa. So the other thing that it's important to say is that at the time in the 1960s, Yugoslavia was an incredibly unique position as a European country because it was neither part of the Soviet bloc, it had been kicked out of the Soviet bloc actually in 1948 for kind of refusing to tow Stalin's line. And it wasn't a Western country either because it was socialist. And so it was in an isolated position diplomatically in Europe and it reached out to all of these newly independent countries uh, to kind of build bridges and, and create political alliances, which is how Yugoslavia ended up having such a central role in the online movement and how it ended up hosting the first online summit in 1961. So for all of these reasons, this man who was the cameraman of the Yugoslav president simply happened to be a witness of the incredible creation of this movement and happened to have filmed all of these encounters be between these statesmen, um, this first summit that took place in 1961. And suddenly it was through his archives that I realized that I had found the way to tell the story that I wanted to tell which again goes back to how they represented themselves in the media. So it kind of felt like the story of the cameraman and the person who had filmed this historic moment was kind of the ideal entry point for telling or examining the non-aligned movement from the point of view that I was interested in. You know, what comes to mind for me in hearing you speak about performing political identity through archival material is how did the relationship between the members embody into the records that were left in thinking of what what can we read about their internal versus their external communication. The awareness of having a political representation and presence, as you mentioned, on the streets, especially in that media landscape of the 60s and the 70s. How do you think about their relationship through a media strategy? So they definitely knew um, all of these countries that came to independence in the 1950s and 1960s. They were definitely aware that one of the battles that they were going to have to keep fighting um, to kind of against the power imbalance on the world stage was the media fight. Um, countries that were coming from colonialism didn't have any media infrastructures of their own. For example, in, in French colonies during French, the French colonial era, something called the Laval Decree prevented, actually prohibited um, indigenous populations from making films at all. They weren't allowed to make films. So as the kind of colonial powers ceded this territory and withdrew, these newly emerging countries, they didn't have necessarily press of their own, newsreels of their own, um, film units of their own. And they knew that they needed to set these up very quickly because for double reasons. So one was in order to harness the media in the creation of new national identities. Many of these countries arrive at independence with um, kind of 
summarily drawn borders. So this idea of creating a national identity, a national unity of their new populations was something that they were going to really heavily need to rely on media to do. So one was this kind of internal use of media. And it's important to say also one of the legacies of colonialism is that these were heavily illiterate populations. So again, um, going through kind of printed press was not the most viable strategy, which is one reason why they leaned so heavily on cinema. They needed to lean on a medium that even illiterate populations could relate to. And then they had an external strategy, which was to say, okay, how do you achieve a presence on the world stage? And it's this, the 1960s in particular were an era of what's called summit diplomacy. So there were so many summits and gatherings because as you said, they felt a really strong urge and need to meet with each other, discuss with each other and kind of forge a common political front. And from these summits came this idea that they also needed to build their own media channels, you know, something that was going to kind of counter this center periphery axis of information flow. Um, and they began to set up their own news pools. Yugoslavia, again, was the country that created later, a decade later in the 1970s, the non-aligned international news pool. But this whole idea was that there must be a way to make information flow um, in a kind of periphery, periphery, if you want fashion, um, and not to be dependent on the media centers of the great powers. And so in this kind of double strategy of harnessing media in order to tell the national narrative and create a national identity for their own countries and populations, and to give them a, a voice, a political platform on the international stage, a lot was achieved uh, by coming together, creating shared uh, films, shared collaborative film projects, collaborative um, newsreels, exchanging newsreels. And for me, this is kind of really where I situate my work because the, the fundamental material that I'm working with on this project are those newsreels. So I'm working with filmed archives that were created as collaborations between non-aligned countries from the 19, late 1950s to the late 1960s. And what most people don't know, and it, it was a very surprising thing for me as well when I began my research, is that Yugoslavia played a very central role in this. So for example, the first newsreels shot for an independent Mali and an independent Tanzanian Africa were shot by Yugoslav cameramen and were edited in Yugoslavia. Some of the first films made for independence movements in Africa that were still fighting to win their independence such as Algeria and Mozambique were also shot by Yugoslav cameramen. And actually one of them happened to be Stevan Lambudovic, the main character of my film, who spent three years shooting the Algerian liberation war for the Algerian liberation movement. And so I've kind of started going through these archives, which have largely been forgotten, mostly due to the disappearance of Yugoslavia, but also to the, due to the fact that an online movement after the end of the Cold War kind of really lost its political relevance. Um, and I've started kind of trying to index these archives, um, digitize them, and then figure out ways of reactivating them, not only through my own filmmaking storytelling, but also figuring out ways to create um, a kind of alternative distribution pattern for these archives, particularly to make them accessible and visible to people in countries where they were filmed. It is so interesting thinking about the accessibility of information today in relation to gaps of communication that seem to be growing with algorithmic information processing and the so-called attention economy. Thinking of the type of information and type of access one is afforded today, how do you think about the impact of the digital divide and what does it mean to decolonize a certain piece of material culture? 
what areas are under-researched or over-researched and what is given visibility? How could aspects that you learned in working with this material forge their way to current discussions of the digital divide, of a potential role in creating something that would be a more fertile way of thinking what does it mean to decolonize today? And where is work needed in this space today? The first thing worth, worth saying is that this period of history, which showed so much promise and was really kind of felt like a moment of true political emancipation, you know, for a very marginalized, if you like, set of the world's population, um, is something that is really, really interesting to trace through media. But these images, these archives are generally unknown to the populations of those countries today. I think it has to do in large part with demographics, pure and simple, you know, in countries such as Algeria, where I've spent quite a bit of time in the last couple of years due to this uh, topic, um, something like 65% of the population is under 20 years of age. I mean, the statistics are kind of mind boggling. You, the same goes for many countries in Africa, the, the kind of the youth demographic or the, the, the prevalence of youth within the national demographic is such that these young people don't necessarily have memory, institutional public memory, but also, you know, even necessarily private memory transmitted to them about um, the era of the 60s when their countries gained independence. And so for me, what has been interesting in the way I've kind of been researching this work and thinking about outreach in particular, so how am I going to reach the populations of the countries where these materials were filmed? I've particularly been interested in reaching the young population because I feel that you know, they are the ones who would benefit the most from, I guess, building their own links to their own past. And so for me, interestingly enough, the more, more research I've done into this topic, the more I figure that the place to find young people will be on social media. I actually think that um, their consumption of social media is really kind of orienteering my own strategy about how to get this, get these archives out there and circulating among, you know, young people at the ages of 14, 16, 18, 20, um, whom I would like to engage with um, in viewing, discussing and rethinking these archives. I completely agree that there is a digital divide, but funnily enough, I'm actually trying to lean into that, I guess, you know, to, to really um, activate digital instruments in order to make these archives accessible. And then, you know, obviously there's a whole other element concerning digitization and archives, which is that so many of these archives remain inaccessible to populations in other countries because they're not digitized, because there haven't been funds. And that is absolutely the case of Yugoslavia's archives. Um, there haven't been funds or it hasn't necessarily been a kind of strategic priority for, for the government to digitize archives, which would obviously really increase the chance of getting access to them. So part of the work that I've been doing as well has been fundraising and kind of partnering um, with institutions in ways that would allow me to digitize these archives, which then again leaves legal obstacles to how can they be disseminated and distributed. It's not so simple. It's not a question of just digitizing it and putting it online, obviously. But it... For me, it felt like it would be a first step to digitize them and then figure out ways to collaborate, um, host screenings, you know, organize exchanges, and, and really take these materials to their countries, to the countries where, where they were filmed, in order to help, help spark conversations there. So I don't know um, whether these, you know, gestures counteract this question of digital, digital divide, but for me, there have been ways of 
kind of try to think through, I guess, the, the most viable ways of reactivating these archives today. You're listening to Looks Like New, a show that asks old questions about new tech. Stick with us. We'll be back soon. Welcome back to Looks Like New. Today we're talking to Dr. Mila Turelic about the non-aligned movement and how to work with archives in today's media landscape. So Mila, you're often mentioned as an archival artist. What does that entail in your particular practice when we consider the tensions mentioned between representation and memory, between media infrastructures and the digital divide, where has it taken you with the transformation of the online media landscape, especially in the last 10 years since, for example, Cinema Comunisto? So the work that I've been doing with archives in, in my filmmaking has really been related to the fact that I witnessed the disappearance of Yugoslavia at kind of my most formative age during my teenage years and, and as a young student. And so along with the disappearance of the country came this very deliberate erasure of its existence from public memory, which is to say that everything from the public holidays to street names, um, to school names was changed in order kind of to disappear the ideology and symbolism of Yugoslavia and to impose the new kind of national narrative of Serbia. And part of this disappearance was the, the erasure and closure of institutions and um, the kind of setting aside of archival images from that era. And I think in many, many ways, with my first film, Cinema Comunista, which is about an abandoned film studio, which is about the abandoned film studio of the former Yugoslavia, the kind of central film studio that created more than half of Yugoslav cinema, which by the time that I had become a student was this derelict kind of rundown, again, completely forgotten institution. A lot of, I think what drove my filmmaking at time was an incredibly necessary to me um, gesture of resistance against that tide of erasure. And so oftentimes in my films, I'll be filming in a location which is about to disappear, which is about to be closed. I'll be filming through documents or archives that are about to be thrown away. And I think half of the time I spent in that film studio making Cinema Comunisto, I spent filming and the other half I spent taking things out of the garbage that they were throwing into the garbage in front of my eyes and putting in the trunk of my car. Um, And there was just this feeling of not wanting to allow the current structures of power to erase the traces of, you know, an ideology that was no longer suitable for them and kind of really wanting to preserve my generation's right and the right of the future generations to kind of examine that heritage on our own and, and, you know, for ourselves and to kind of build our own narratives instead of having them becoming rootless um, due to, you know, political ideologies. And so the work with archives is a really natural extension of that. One is because, you know, my first film was about a film studio. So it was also about abandoned film reels. And it was also about this kind of abandon of the image of the past. And for me, kind of delving into those images of the past became a way to appropriate myself of that story and kind of use it to tell a narrative that I felt was, you know, no longer existed. 
And ever since then, in, in every film that I've been working on, the project of gathering what remains of archive has kind of always gone above and beyond the work I did on the film itself. So in my second film, The Other Side of Everything, I treat another era, I treat the era of the 90s, which is this era of um, the breakup of Yugoslavia when Serbia kind of descended into political chaos and instability and um, a very authoritarian regime. And I began to gather what remains of archival images of our resistance to that regime of Sloboda Milosevic. At some point, obviously you go far beyond what, what are the needs of the film. But I was just in this gesture of gathering and digitizing in order to preserve. And so I decided uh, while I'm doing it, seeing as these archives are again disappearing for another reason, which is because they're electronic archives. So it's VHS tapes from the 1990s. I just, you know, kind of rotting away in people's basements and shoeboxes. I just felt like the reasons for making this film are the same ones that are compelling me to go as far as I can and gather in this archive and I ended up with hundreds of hours of archive of the resistance against the civil war in Yugoslavia and the resistance against the regime of Milosevic, which obviously I knew as I was doing it was not going to be used in this film that I'm making, but I felt that I was kind of charged with the duty of gathering it anyway. And, uh, and digitizing it for the people who own this archive, but also in order to kind of try and create a fund of images um, that would again, allow another generation to know what had taken place in Serbia in the nineties. And so there's this gesture of, if you want archival activism, oftentimes that really kind of extends beyond the work on the film itself. But for me, I see it as a deeply political gesture and it really drives my relationship to the archive because I feel like I'm engaged in a battle for preservation, but for, for the pre preservation, not in an institutional sense at all, in a much broader activist sense of um, preserving our access to a past that the powers in place don't want us to have access to. So what I'm hearing you bring across is this continual and transformative space of erasure and inscribing that happens simultaneously with political decision-making in how media is produced. And this happens both in terms of past and present. Does the legacy of the Yugoslav archives that you personally worked with influence a specific media imaginary or representation of a certain type of identity of the non-aligned movement? Did you notice a path of erasure and inscribing in this space? And if yes, in which way did it play out? Well, that's a really interesting question because it now goes into the kind of heart of aesthetics of these images, not just their politics. Going one step back, so my first film, as I said, Cinema Comunista, really kind of deals with what were becoming, rapidly becoming erased images of Yugoslavia. But my interest in these images was actually twofold. One was to preserve them, obviously, and to kind of reveal the state they were in at the time I was filming. But the second was to use them as a way to examine the way in which Yugoslavia had been created as a political entity and its political narrative had been forged via cinema. And so what I was really interested in looking at is how the powers of the time, which is the Communist Party and in particular President Tito, had harnessed cinema to this um, project of creating one political entity out of a country that was you know, composed of many nationalities and many religions but that there was this idea that you could 
construct a cohesive political narrative and that cinema could provide the images for that narrative. And that's what I was looking at in Cinema Comunisto. So obviously now that I started working on an online movement and that I've realized how deeply Yugoslavia was involved in replicating that situation for cinema in other non-aligned countries. So when I said that Yugoslavs had filmed the first newsreels for an independent Mali and independent Tanzania, they had also set up the film units of those countries. So they were kind of intimately involved with the creation of the political infrastructure for the creation of cinema in these countries. And then in other cases, like the case of Mozambique, the first fiction film of Mozambique was directed by a Yugoslav director with a Yugoslav team that went to Mozambique to collaborate with um, local filmmakers and its making. So they were obviously exporting not only kind of the cinematic technical means, but also this political philosophy of how cinema could be harnessed to tell the national story. And in that sense, when then you start looking at the aesthetics of these films, of course you see, you know, so much, so many parallels in terms of media representations, in terms of the narrative. I think one thing that is incredibly important to say is that Yugoslavia was communist Yugoslavia, post-World War II Yugoslavia was born from an anti-fascist partisan struggle and President Tito had been the leader of an incredibly successful guerrilla movement in the Second World War. And so the kind of founding myth of the country was very much one uh, built on a revolutionary ethos. And this is something that so many newly created countries in Africa, particularly those who had had to come to independence through, an in, um, through a liberation struggle of their own, could really relate to. So when you look at the films made by Yugoslavs like Stevan Labudovic for independence movements in Africa, you absolutely see that they are borrowing a kind of revolutionary aesthetic, a kind of um, narrative approach, if you like, um, cinematic codes and conventions that Yugoslav Yugoslavs had kind of, you know, um, developed for telling their own revolutionary struggle, and then they're exporting those conventions to other countries. And I find that incredibly interesting. Um, because sometimes it works and, and other times there's something slightly incongruent about it because you're wondering how genuine this is to the culture of the country in which these films are being made. And yet at the same time, what I find really interesting is that that's, this is the place where you can situate maybe the kind of birth of modern day information wars um, because they were bringing out these films about their own national independence struggles, about um, their newly independent countries, new, their, their, their political systems. Because they were bringing out these films in the era of the Cold War, they're kind of entering, willfully engaging in a propaganda war with uh, the East and the West, you know? And so what is incredibly interesting is this idea of um, waging war via media is something that you really, really see uh, in the creation and the use of these films from the 1960s. In an interesting way, this reminds me of the phrase context collapse in a particular a sense of collapse that happens between various diverse contexts when concept is taken across and exported. And the risk that comes with it, the potential of feeding radicalization of opinion by reducing this certain image to be able to come across. 
Yeah, it's interesting what you're saying, context collapsing. I don't know if that's how I would describe it, but I, there was this definite feeling. So I'll give you one example. Um, the Algerian Liberation War, because it's the one on whose media representation I worked the most because you know, the, the main character of my film was kind of at the heart of that. And he's even been called the cinematic eye of the Algerian revolution uh, because he spent three years filming the Algerian Liberation War. So the Algerian Liberation War was one of the longest fought independence wars in Africa. It was a seven year war, which cost millions of lives. But um, it was a war that was not won militarily. Algeria did not win its independence from France in the battlefield. Algeria won its independence from France because it managed to wage such a successful international diplomatic and media campaign to win over international public opinion to their cause, ultimately making it morally untenable for France to remain in Algeria. And this strategy of harnessing the media in order to win a diplomatic battle instead of a military battle is something that historians have been working on maybe for the last 10 years really intensely and that I found absolutely essential to my um, understanding and contextualizing of the films that were made by Stefan Labudovic. So these, he's not there as a journalist. He's not there to create kind of value neutral historic records, if you want, of a militant struggle. He's there as part of this militant struggle. His camera is an instrument of an independence struggle. And he himself is very willfully in that sense drafted into the ranks of a liberation army because his job is to create the images for them that will help them win an international battle of public opinion. And so, you know, I don't know whether this is, as you referred to it, context collapsing, but there is a definite militant use to the image. There's a definite use strategy behind its making and its dissemination and for me, I, I just, I, that, that's kind of where I found it so interesting to be back in this analysis of the harnessing of cinema for political narratives, which has kind of been the core of my work ever since my first film. Where I completely agree with you is, you know, as ideologies collapse, these images become orphan images because they are now not accompanied by the context in which they were created. And so for me, a key aspect of my work and I think one reason why it's been so slow in many ways is that I didn't feel that it was sufficient or even acceptable to simply digitize these images and kind of throw them out there and be okay, like everyone make of them what you will. I felt that as important as digitizing and hence making accessible these images was the work of recontextualizing them. So understanding who had made them, for what reason, in which context, with which intentions. And that required going beyond the filmed archives into actual paper archives. So I began researching, I obtained authorization to go into the archives of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in, of the former Yugoslavia, into the archives of Yugoslavia, into the archives of the newsreels, going through reports, documents, telegrams, private letters, um, anything that would help me understand the origins of these images and hence kind of return them from their orphan state into kind of contextualized state and then offer them for exchange and interpretation to a kind of modern day audience. Because I felt that if I didn't do that in their orphan state, they were so vulnerable to misinterpretations and false contextualizations that I had a kind of fiduciary obligation to the people who had made them and to the images themselves of you know, kind of wrapping them in the context of their creation. And that's been a real struggle for me. We've heard about 
media archives from an ideological lens, lens of context accountability, building infrastructure and co-creating liberation. More about the power of media archives after the break. You're listening to Looks Like New, a show that asks old questions about new tech. Stick with us, we'll be back soon. Welcome back to Looks Like New. Today we're talking to Dr. Mila Turelic about the non-aligned movement and how to work with archives in today's media landscape. From your experience working and being in contact with both the Global South and the Global North, could you cast some light on how media archives differentiate? institutionally, geographically, aesthetically, between the developed and the developing world, between building infrastructure and working within built infrastructure? And has digitization played a role in changing distribution and accessibility in the South? From my experience, you know, I don't know that I necessarily have a kind of very global overview of this, but from my experience of working on the subject of non-alignment and Yugoslavia, researching both in the archives of the former Yugoslavia, archives in Western Europe and North America, and then archives in certain countries in Africa. Obviously you, you remark um, systemic and institutional differences into how, where, where archives are situated and how they are um, exploited. You know, when you work with large audiovisual archives of um, particularly public broadcasters or, you know, in, in the case like France, where all of the broadcasting archives are in one major national archive, you begin to see, obviously, that there are trends and some of them quite, you know, positive trends of increased digitalization, um, which increases access to, to these archives via their platforms and so on the means that they have at their disposal to do proper conservation and preservation of the filmed image. Um, and at the same time, what feels an incredibly disturbing trend of increased commercialization and privatization of large archive holdings. I think in the last five, 10 years, there's been a kind of um, increased awareness of the ability to monetize audiovisual archives. And we're seeing kind of major conglomerates and holdings forming in the Western world around um, archival images and their commercial monetization and exploitation. That feels like the trend that worries me the most, if you like, in, in terms of um, working with archives in, as I said, in Western Europe or in North America. In some of the countries where I've been able to work with archives, let's say it's the case in, in the former Yugoslavia, also the case in Algeria, what little access I've had to archives in Egypt, India as well, where I did some archive research. It's a completely different trend. Um, one comes from the fact that access to the archives is still very much a politically dominated question which is not really the case for most archives that I've worked with in Western Europe and North America. The physical situation of these materials, how they're being preserved, conserved, digitized, and rendered accessible 
is a very political question in these countries. It has to do with um, the fact that their power structures oftentimes have very ambivalent relationships towards the past and hence even more ambivalent relationships to the preservation of the images of the past. And as I said, I think this goes true for Serbia as well uh, and for the other countries that I mentioned that I, I've, I worked in. And so this immediately opens great questions about access, how you access, how you negotiate that access, um, compromises you have to make with the institutions and the people who have the power to grant you that access. It also reflects on the conditions that the archives are in because obviously archive preservation depends on public funding. Public funding depends on the political climate. So again, you kind of see how politics extends into every area of the existence and use of these archives. And um, at the same time, I feel like maybe because these archives remain so inaccessible, public curiosity about them is huge. Oftentimes you'll see people who obtain bits and pieces of archive in various forms, who then upload them to YouTube. And then this will provoke tens of thousands of clicks and views um, and comments from people for, for whom it is often really a, a discovery to see these images of their country's past. And so the hunger I think is maybe greater because the access to these images is more restricted. But there, what I feel is a danger is one, obviously that with every change in the political climate, um, this, this, this like an ebb and flow, this archive becomes less or more accessible and hence incredibly, incredibly fragile um, in, in, in terms of, um, you can't really refer to them as kind of stable systems of, of, of archive research. And then two is that because when it, when it is publicly shared, it's, it's usually done, um, like I said, on these kind of random YouTube channels where people don't quote the source of the archives, its origins, then, then comes this project, this problem that I referred to earlier, which is this problem of the orphan image. It's decontextualized in terms of its creation, it also detextualized in terms of its content. And so people often struggle to actually read the images, you know, to kind of know what is being shown in these images. And again, it opens them up to a lot of misinterpretation and to my opinion, sometimes even to misuse. So I feel like there's another type of work that needs to be done in situations like that. And like I mentioned before, for me, it's been essential to the work that I've been doing, which is kind of really trying to contextualize these images as they become publicly available and they begin to circulate. So what I hear you say about the political impact of working with archives in a globalized world is in a way a twofold practice, re-acknowledging the context, which is the original one, but also taking into account the context of the affordances of viewership, the positioning of how the same image will be viewed from a potential position of external voyeurism and projection of something that could be exoticizing an image versus a rediscovery in contexts where there is more at stake, where there is a direct political aspect to accessing the image. And so working with archives becomes a process of both recontextualizing and working with the original material, but also working and recontextualizing the viewership it is encountering now. In that light, could you tell us a bit more about the other aspects of the research project that are accompanying and extending the film? 
bringing it closer to other modalities and sensory access for various audiences. Absolutely. So I think that I referred to earlier this feeling of having some kind of fiduciary responsibility to these archives in particular because I spent three years with the man who made them, which kind of really drove home to me these, the necessity for me to subjectivize this material, to kind of really render accessible to people who were the authors, who were the filmmakers, and what were their subjectivities, their personal motivations for creating the images that they created. It was incredibly important for me to do that. And so what started as a project for a documentary film became then a kind of artistic research project, if you like, that um, because I realized that I would need to be um, incredibly um, pluridisciplinary in my work, if you like, or in in my, my approach. The reason for this is that I work with archives differently according to the kind of discipline that I'm in. So I created a web platform, which has kind of become this hub called Nonaligned Newsreels, which has kind of become the hub for the entire research project. But it involves not only uploading clips and research and materials that I've been working through and digitizing. I also wrote an academic, a very kind of scholarly academic article for a peer reviewed journal, feeling that going back to this idea of contextualization that I also in parallel with the images, I had to get the story of the images out there and I had to get it out there in many different forms. So this idea of starting with an academic article in a kind of very respected journal was also to lend credibility to my methodology, to the process, to the work, and also to give those viewers who wanted the kind of academic thoroughness and depth um, to the research work to give them kind of, you know, that tool or that filter or that lens through which they can then observe the other elements of the project. So it's really been this idea of exploring different methodologies, you know, because when I'm referring to the feature length film that we're hoping to bring out by the end of this year, Obviously, the way I use the archive in the film is, again, a very subjective thing. I use it, I harness it to my own storytelling, to my own narrative desires. So, you know, to kind of round out the work with the archives, I also opt for other methodologies and other forms of expressing my research um, that would kind of really help uh, potential viewers kind of complete that picture. So going back to your question, I guess for me, the the principal axis of the work that I've been doing is one is someone who who feels still today Yugoslav and who worked with the cameraman who shot the archive to kind of give it this Yugoslav parentage that these images have lost by virtue of the disappearance of the country. And because Yugoslavia has been so marginalized and so erased from public conversations in almost every domain, academic, cultural, artistic, it was really about, as a Yugoslav, putting my own narrative back into circulation. My second priority has been aimed at the people in the countries whose stories we are telling. So like I said, in the last five years, I've been to Algeria many times, building links and relationships and conversations with people of different generations, of the generations who are still alive that fought the independence war, but also the young generation who is today trying to fight its own political revolution in Algeria. And kind of really now extending that research and those connections to other countries where the archives were were shot. And then as as you rightfully refer, there is a kind of third audience, which is this, if you like, what you refer to as a Western audience, you know, who maybe views this entire subject through a prism of exoticism. And I'm kind of hoping that the work that I do as a filmmaker, which is bringing my narratives 
to the spaces where they consume media, if you like, film festivals, broadcasters, you know, museums, screenings, university tours, that I will expand also the public conversation that can take place with those audiences in those countries. But I can't say that they're my principal target. It's really first and foremost, this idea of reappropriating yourself of this narrative and the people who are, who are depicted in these films of their narrative and then, you know, Obviously, it's incredibly important for me that this is a universal story of, of kind of global reach, but um, I'm hoping that it will provide a new narrative look for audiences who, are, who have maybe been used to, you know, media representations of this historical period or, or of these kind of geographical um, locations in, in other ways. So as we have somehow approached the end of this conversation, even though it feels like only at the beginning, having opened so many avenues and reestablishing relationships to media archives. One thing I would like to share is that hearing you speak during the course of our conversation has brought such a new flavor to the phrase, the personal is political, specifically in placing media archives in one's own perspective in society. You shared a deep engagement with the material that acknowledges both your lived role in creating the inspiration for the work you do, but at the same time, a very deep political engagement of what are the specific contexts that you work with. And this comes across through this deep devotion to what you call creating a parentage of images and a dedication to the reasoning behind the placement of media images and their protagonists within a landscape of a, of a specific place and time. The last hour uh, has been such a wonderful archival journey and privilege to talk to you, and thank you so much for joining us. I hope we can continue this conversation really soon. Thank you. Thank you for your questions. They kind of really created a space for reflecting on a lot of the work that I've been doing. So it's been um, also for me, it's kind of been wonderful to be able to, to talk through all that with you. So thank you again. You've been listening to Looks Like New on KGNU Radio, a show that asks old questions about new tech. We've been speaking with Dr. Mila Turelic about media archives of the non-aligned movement. If you would like to find out more about Mila's work, visit nonalignednewsreels.com. I'm Daria Medic, today's host of Looks Like New, a production of CU's Media Enterprise Design Lab. You can find out more about our work at colorado.edu slash lab slash medlab. If you liked what you heard, please spread the word about this show and consider leaving a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Leaving positive reviews will help our conversations reach more listeners. We would love to hear your comments or guest ideas. You can reach us by emailing medlab at colorado.edu. I hope you'll join us for another conversation next month. And until then, stay safe.